0: What happens when you get some of the most senior leaders we have to share his or her advice on a one-on-one basis? I'm Michael Sears. I used to brief flag officers as part of my job. Now the tables are turned, and we're letting some of the most senior naval, military, and civilian leaders we have brief us. Welcome to the Flag Brief. Stay with us. I'm in conversation today with Ms. Christine Fox. Ms. Fox is currently the Assistant Director for Policy and Analysis at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. She's responsible for connecting APL's considerable technology expertise to broader policy issues. Previously, she served as Acting Deputy Secretary of Defense, the number two position at DOD. Closer to home, here in the yard, Ms. Fox served as the chair of the Naval Academy's Board of Visitors. Welcome, Madam Secretary.
1: Oh, thank you, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be with you today.
0: And it's a pleasure to have you here. You know, you've done so many different things in service to this country. I'm happy to have a chance to talk to you and let you talk to the midshipmen primarily, about something that we don't talk about that much, and that is the civilian-military relationship. I mean, you've been the most senior member of the Department of Defense uh, in, in your career and your background, and you, you've you worked with flag officers and generals. It's important for young junior officers to understand what that relationship is all about. So let me ask you the first question. Can you explain the civil-military relations and what that means?
1: Well, I can certainly give it a try. You know, I think it's really actually pretty easy and pretty fundamental. Right, This is a democracy. The people vote for who they want their leadership to be. The military exists to support the nation, to defend it, to be able to fight and win its wars in that defense, of course, but also to support the policies and objectives of the nation. Those policies and objectives are set by the elected officials. So the civil part is, are the people that are elected or appointed by elected officials, and they set the policies. And the military is the supporting arm that is responsible for defending the nation, but also supporting those policies. Does that help? It, it
0: does. But you know, and, and I know where an admiral comes from. I know that he or she has had 30 years of progressive experience in the Naval Service to get to the place that he or she is. I hope this doesn't sound too too unusual, but where do folks like you come from?
1: Yeah, it doesn't sound unusual at all. Um, you know, you would probably not, but a lot of people would be surprised at the depth of expertise represented by our civilian government officials. Um, I had the privilege to support three different Secretaries of Defense when I was in government, and I worked. My colleagues were, um, were, were people, all of whom who had served in previous administrations in the Defense Department, who had studied um, national security, uh, public policy. Um, in my case, I had studied military operations my whole career before going into government, So our civilian leaders are absolutely first rate, in my experience, and uh, very well prepared for the jobs that they have through their previous experiences. Just You want to think of it just like an admiral, right? An admiral doesn't wake up one morning and he's an admiral or she's an admiral. They basically go through a series of experiences that lead them to have the qualifications to do that job. That's true on the civilian side as well. It's just not quite as structured.
0: And, And if I remember correctly, you were in the group of folks who were actually talking about missile defense years ago. Did I get that right? Missile defense for carrier fleet operations?
1: Yes, I was uh, certainly missile defense, but also just uh, the role of carriers and carrier strike groups starting all the way back in the Cold War, when we were very concerned about our ability to, for the military to actually do that job of being prepared to fight and win the nation's wars um, and defend the United States if necessary. Um, And so I did a lot of work with carriers, carrier strike groups, but also um, other parts of the Navy battle groups, as we called them in those days.
0: In the introduction, I introduced you as the, uh, at one point, the acting deputy secretary of defense. Can you tell me what that job is, what you did in
1: that role? Yeah, sure. So one way to think about being the Deputy Secretary of Defense is that you are responsible to take care of all of the problems that nobody else in the department can or will take care of, and that the secretary just doesn't want to deal with. That's kind of the short version of the job. It's um, it's an important job. The, uh, the way that That the responsibilities of running the Department of Defense are divided up between the Secretary and the Deputy is very personality dependent. In my case, I served under Secretary Hagel, and Secretary Hagel has a very strong and impressive foreign policy background, and that was the part of the job that he did. He did it beautifully, and he wanted me to help him do the the internal running of the Pentagon. the budget and program kind of decisions. What kind of things are we going to buy, and um, and and some of the other aspects of working across the rest of the department to get the job done. Um, and so that that was that's a kind of traditional uh, delineation of responsibilities, but it's not the only model that's out there. Some have different kinds of partnerships, and and I and I've seen those partnerships where where they divide up different aspects of the policy agenda. Um, But in my case, mine was more on the uh, internal workings of the department, and Secretary Hagel dealt with the external engagements. Not that I didn't have my opportunities to do some of that, too. That was a lot of fun.
0: Sure, sure. And and I want to be very clear here. When you talk about budgets and things like that. You really are talking about strategies. If we're talking about a 500-ship Navy of different uh, weapon systems or even personnel issues, that's that's part and parcel of strategy,
1: right? That's absolutely right. So when you think about um, the the budget of the Defense Department, it's 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 huge, right? And it's uh, executed throughout the department by all of the different services. Like the Navy has a budget, and the Navy has a plan for spending that budget. Secretary of Defense and the Deputy Secretary of Defense they don't have time to get into the details and particulars of how those dollars are spent. What they're looking for are the the big things, right? How many ships are we gonna have? What kind of ships are we gonna have? The Navy wants to do this. Is that consistent with our strategic goals for the military and the Department of Defense and this administration? So will the president like it? And that's the role of the deputy. And then the secretary has to take those decisions over to the Congress and convince the Congress that the budget is going to buy the right things and do the right things for the country.
0: So, how do you work with the admirals and the generals in that case? Because you know, I've seen senior uh, executive staff in front of Congress. I've seen generals and admirals in front of in front of Congress. I know there's a. Is there a line, or is it is it is it, is it, it does it depend on the people and the issues and the circumstances also?
1: Yeah, well, it definitely depends on the the people and the issues and the relationships. But, But sort of pulling back from that, there is a line. The military is responsible to provide their best military advice to the civilian leadership. So the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is responsible for giving his best military advice to the president and the secretary of defense. The chief of naval operations, uh, Admiral Gilday now, he's, he's a part of the body that gives that advice on budgets and what you're going to buy. It's the same kind of thing that the head of the service, the chief of naval operations, he's responsible for figuring out today what the Navy should be like and what it should invest in now. And those investments, they'll last for decades let's just take the the boomer right the ssbns those submarines lasted for, were supposed to last 30 years we've stretched them to 40 years right 40 years carriers can last 50 years that's a lot longer than a four year administration or even an eight year administration so so the the implications of the decisions of what we buy for the military departments goes way beyond the administration that's making those decisions so They have a very big role in figuring out that long-term view. That's their job. What is the long-term view? What's best for the Navy going out for decades? And then they should provide that advice up to the civilian leaders. But the civilian leaders are responsible for actually allocating those dollars and working with Congress to allocate those dollars and do those buys. So it's it's a partnership. But the final decision is on the civilian side. And so it needs to be aligned with that strategy, just as you were saying.
0: I, I want to get to that line again, but let me ask you this. You mentioned military. The the admirals and the generals make this make some key decisions about the military, but military is not just kinetic military is, is is crisis management, military is rescue. I mean, with with the science and with the things that are happening worldwide now, is there a difference with how civilian leadership works with naval and, and military officers in non-kinetic engagements, in, in rescue operations?
1: You know, I don't really think so. I, I believe that the military always has the role and the responsibility to to say what they can and can't do, what will and won't work. But the civilians make the decision about the risk that they take. And that's a big responsibility. I know of no civilian leader that I've ever had the privilege to work with that's taken that responsibility lightly. So even in in humanitarian operations or search and rescue operations, um, the civilians can decide to delegate. And often do if it's a if it's a search and rescue operation they won't they won't get involved they shouldn't get involved right they'll delegate down but they need to know that something is going on um, and so it, it's a it's a, a partnership it really is the, the best of it and the experiences I've enjoyed have been partnerships where we talk we understand. Um, They understand what what our red lines are, if you will, about what we need to know and what we need to decide. And we understand when something is just a military operation and we really ought to stay out of it. Are those lines blurry? Yeah. Do we get them wrong? Sometimes. But that's that's the way we try to make it work.
0: Let me jump on that last thing because I, I think that's really, really, really critical in this democracy in this country and in the way we have developed ourselves as people and as a country. Can you talk a little bit more about? I, I guess the the term is the right to be wrong. As a civilian leader, you have a right to be wrong in the decisions you make, and how does that interact with what the military is supposed to do about that?
1: Yeah. We do have the right to be wrong and the military is expected to honor that and um, and follow the civilian guidelines and leadership and do what the civilians say. And if the civilians make a decision that is bad from a military perspective, it is their right because the civilian side is trying and has to actually balance um, a lot of competing uh, uh, objectives, a lot of competing pressures, a lot of competing constraints. So the military's advice is from a military perspective. It's one perspective. The civilian is balancing a lot of different perspectives. And those competitions of, of constraints or, or goals even can force the military to uh, perform something that is not their first choice and it could be a mistake, and it could be wrong. But it is not the military's job to make those risk decisions or, or decide those balances. And I will tell you, Michael, that in today's world, more and more and more, that civilian right to be wrong is, is under a magnifying glass. And more and more and more, I think there is debate in the country and open discourse about, did they do it right? Did they do it wrong? And um, military expertise and the voice in that, um, is, it has an impact. And I, I think we need to be careful with that. I think we need to think about it because that, that role of the civilian is our democracy. It's what sets us apart. And it, it is critically important that we preserve it.
0: So many pressures today, not only on politicians and senior civilians and military, uh, but I think you're absolutely right. Uh, there is that line, and uh, our civilian bosses are our bosses. D- let, let me let me let me jump down to focus on the midshipmen listening to, the, to this uh, podcast today. What can a junior officer do today, day in and day out, as as he or she gets ready to hit the deck plate, but understand that they need to prepare themselves to work. Uh, With senior leaders out there who aren't necessarily military or naval leaders, but to, to prepare themselves to work in this environment where we've got these civilian officials in charge.
1: So I believe that it's very important to understand what's expected of you today. But the more that you can do to understand what is expected of those around you, the better prepared you will be to move into those positions. So I I have always believed that the best recommendations, the best advice, and, you know, I've said a big role of the military leaders is to provide the best military advice. That advice is going to be accepted when it is possible to accept it. And to understand that, you, you have to understand that broader environment, some of those competing constraints I was talking about, some of those competing pressures. So... And the Naval Academy sets a very strong academic agenda and a very strong academic standard. And I fully support that because that is something that they should take with them. They should always be studying what's going on around me, what's going on um, in in the world, in my nation, in, in my immediate sphere. Not just your job. You should definitely work hard to do your job to the best you possibly can. But what's your boss's job? What does your boss face? What constraints and pressures is your boss under? It's so easy, and I've done it. We've all done it through our careers, I expect, to be in your world and know your picture and think, gosh, those guys above me, they just don't get it. They're, 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 they're out to lunch. Um, I wish they'd just do what I think. But what you think does not probably account for the world they're living in. But if you could account for the world they're living in, you would probably help them more. And certainly you'd be better prepared to step into that role in your next assignment and the one after that and the one after that. I think there's a very clear example of this um, in a, a very traditional military structure, and that is the, the role of the senior military assistant to, to, uh, to leaders. Senior officers have military assistance and senior civilians have military assistance. I enjoyed several fantastic military assistants. That is very much um, a, a more formalized way that the military assigns people to learn what I'm talking about, to let you as a more junior person see the world through the eyes of a more senior person. Any opportunities you get to learn what it's like for those around you, I think the better you will be. I like that.
0: I think that's very well said. Walk a mile in their shoes, in a sense, and understand they've got other pressures, other, other things that are pulling and pushing at them. And being a J.O. right now, beyond learning and learning your job and doing your job, just be aware of uh, what your bosses are doing. That's right. Let me, let me bring it even closer to home. You've served as the president of the Naval Academy Board of Visitors. In doing so, you've had a direct impact on the institution, on the, on the lives of the midshipmen. Can you talk a little bit about what the Board of Visitors does and how they work directly with the Naval Academy, its mission, the, the people, not only the superintendent, but the entire idea of the Naval Academy?
1: Sure. Well, first, let me say that being the chair of the Board of Visitors for the Naval Academy was one of the greatest privileges I've had and a real highlight in my career. And I'm not the chair anymore. It's a, it's an appointed position. And uh, I miss the Naval Academy, although I try to, to stay in touch. So the Board of Visitors is a body that is appointed. It is appointed by both the uh, the administration, the president. Uh, appoints people to the Board of Visitors and the Congress, both the Senate and the House of Representatives. And both sides of the aisle are represented um, in the appointments, although the current administration tends to have the most seats. I was really lucky, though. I was appointed to the Board of Visitors by President Obama. That's the administration I served in. But I stayed on the Board of Visitors through the first, oh, I, I was just off of it earlier this year. So um, through the first three years of President Trump's administration. And so I, I really uh, value that. Um, and I, I, the Board of Visitors role is to understand what the Naval Academy is dealing with. What's it going through? What are its challenges? Is it meeting the needs of the Navy and the nation? and it's academic curriculum, it's in preparing the future naval officers, um, and what challenges does the leadership of the Naval Academy face in, in achieving that mission? It's, it's like any board, in a way, of uh, the board of, of, a, of a company or a nonprofit, and I'm on some of those as well. Those, those jobs are to make sure that that organization is achieving the, the goals and expectations um, that are set for it, but for the Naval Academy, the stakes are high because it's about it's about the the guys that are and girls that I hope are listening to this podcast because I really do believe that they're they are an important part of our future, the future of the country. And so getting it right is really important. And the Board of Visitors has a, a role in making sure that the leadership is working hard on that. And then also figuring out what what help they need? What support do they need? Is there anything that the, the Congress or folks close to the administration can do to raise awareness of issues or or uh, or provide some needed support?
0: Ms. Fox, you've been the highest ranking female official in the history of the United States Department of Defense. I, I, I wonder if you have anything, any ideas, any roles, any, any comments you can make to these uh, young folks, the midshipmen, about what you've seen over your career uh the impact you've made and uh the responsibilities that you see them about to assume as they go off into the fleet
1: it's a big question um and i appreciate it i have been so fortunate in my career i've had so many tremendous opportunities i think your last podcast was with admiral mullen admiral mullen was uh was one of the people who gave me opportunities in my career. He was chairman when I came into the Department of Defense, and uh, he's the one who gave me the call and asked me to come over and have lunch and consider doing that. Um, And I I can't tell you how valuable and uh, how much I treasure that. So I, I think that the best advice I can give to people is that they should figure out what they want to do, what they love to do what they can do and and are capable of doing and doing well and then figuring out how to do it and the most important thing is not let anybody tell you that you can't and um, as a woman in a very senior position in the Defense Department as you as you point out I've sir I saw firsthand um, to my disappointment, I have to confess, in both the civilian and the military side of the Defense Department, that there's an awful lot of people out there telling a lot of other people that they can't. It's not just women. It's not just minorities. It can happen to young white men, too, the, the land of no, you know, you can't do this. Don't do this. You shouldn't try to do this. It's just debilitating. And it's it's harmful. And it's harmful to you and it's harmful to others because that if if you buy it, then the, the nation isn't getting the best that it can get from you. So don't let anybody stop you. I've uh, been very fortunate to have a lot of people in my career that that said yes, that, that encouraged me, that said I should try for things and I should go for things, like Admiral Mullen did when he, he called me about coming into the department. And, and so I, I've been lucky, but I've also experienced a bit of the, of the nose. And, uh, and so you want to hold on to those people that say yes and, and internalize it and hold on to it for yourself. And just realize that there's no the limits. You're the, you're, you're the limit. Just try your very best to do the best you can. And don't let people tell you otherwise, because it gets inside you and it, it tears at you. And, and that's just destructive.
0: I, I appreciate that. I think what I've heard you say is there is a land of no. I like that comment. There is a land of no, but you
1: don't have to live there. That's exactly right. Don't live in the land of No.
0: Madam Secretary, thank you very much for this, time. I think this is a very important message for the, for the midshipmen, the staff and faculty. Thanks for joining us today.
1: It's been an absolute privilege, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: You've been listening to The Flag Brief a series of conversations with senior officers and civilian officials. Thanks for listening. You can find more of our podcasts from the Stockdale Center at RadioStockdale.com.